0: hello and welcome to another edition of Wellbeing. i'm iris nichols we hear frequently these days of open heart surgery of stents and other forms of life-saving treatment which just a few years ago would have hit the media headlines these days these events are common due to science and the incredible training and dedication of people like one of my guests today associate professor dr duncan thompson a cardiothoracic surgeon and Mr John Mangan, a man who has had first knowledge of these skills. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me today. I would like to start with you, Dr Thompson. Ending up in the operating theatre seems to me the last resort for many patients, but what sort of heart conditions lead to your skills?
1: Well, the commonest one is coronary artery disease, Um, and uh, then we often have to replace heart valves if they become uh, defective or for whatever reason. Occasionally we have to repair holes in the heart and sometimes um, even tumours of the heart require surgery.
0: And are there any ways of preventing this surgery?
1: Well, certainly um, the coronary artery disease is uh, preventable for a lot of people. Um, the main preventative measures are uh, diet, exercise and um, staying away from cigarette smoke.
0: What sort of diets you'll be using whether we're a heart patient or not?
1: Well, the, the diet... Um, we should be having is should it be rich in um, antioxidants and the foods that have a lot of antioxidants are uh, fresh fruit and vegetables and particularly the cabbage family um, which is the Brussels sprouts uh, broccoli etc um, apples and walnuts have got a lot of antioxidants and red wine has a lot of antioxidants um, that's one one arm of it the other is um, the oils as they say in the commercial oils ain't oils um, all the saturated fats which are the dairy products are actually bad for the heart, but the oily uh, fish and fish oils are actually very good for the heart and and have been known to prevent coronary artery disease.
0: How big a problem is smoking?
1: Well, uh, it's a big problem for everyone because, on average, a packet of cigarettes takes about uh, four hours off the life of the smoker. Uh, People don't seem to realise that, and most people... um, to actually die of coronary artery disease secondary to smoking and and 50% of all smokers will actually die of complications of smoking such as coronary artery disease or emphysema or lung cancer.
0: If someone's been a smoker, say, for example, for 5 or 10 years and then give it up and there's been a long time since they gave it up, does this increase their need for um, being aware of health problems?
1: If people are smokers and they give it up, then they come, within a few years, they come back to the normal uh, risk of the normal population.
0: Oh, okay. So the sooner they give it up, the, the better, obviously. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I suppose exercise is important too. What sort of exercise is, is the easiest and the best for us?
1: Well, the uh, easiest for most people is just walking. Um, joggers tend to suffer a lot of back injuries and other joint problems. But walking is uh, quite a safe exercise, for, particularly for people who are um, getting in, in middle age and over. Um, uh, there also is a, an added benefit from um, resistance training such as weights uh, as well. If, you, um, if you've got the incentive, there's an actual added benefit to doing that as well as walking.
0: And that would probably mean going to a gym?
1: can do, but I mean, we all uh, we can all use our own body um, for weights, press-ups, sit-ups, um, stool stepping, uh, going upstairs. Um, they're all forms of res- resistance exercise and are all beneficial too.
0: So if somebody lived in a house with, with stairs in it and they were up and down the stairs to nine dozen times a day... It
1: has a benefit.
0: Oh, great. I'll remember that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> they found in uh, London that the conductors, when they, had, when they had bus conductors on the double-decker buses, they found the conductors had less heart disease because they're going up and down the bus steps all day.
0: Well, there's a good hint for all of us, I guess. I think so. <laughs> Let's suppose you've that having been mindful of all the advice that is given to us about heart disease and you have a patient ends up in your office, what makes you decide that the last resort is going to be surgery?
1: Well, there are some forms of um, coronary artery disease that um, are much better suited to surgery than, say, balloons and stents. That's particularly true if the artery is totally blocked because when the cardiologist tries to dilate the artery up, if it's a narrowed artery, they can get the dilated, dilator wire through. But if it's totally blocked, they just hit a dead end and it's very difficult and often impossible for them to dilate that totally blocked artery up. Also, if, uh, if the left coronary artery is diseased right at its origin, that's actually quite a dangerous dangerous thing to try and dilate up for most people because if that fails, then there's a, it's just basically sudden, instant sudden death. and and they don't even get time to get to the operating theatre. So there's a certain subset of patients Mm. that are better suited for surgeries, where surgery is actually a lower risk than uh, trying to do balloons and stents.
0: How do you decide which is best? Do you you have to wait until you get them on the table?
1: No, I don't don't make the decision. The the people who make the decision uh, are the actual cardiologists themselves. Mm. If they think the patient's suitable for balloons and stents, then they are sent to a what's called an interventionist or a cardiologist who does these procedures. Um, but if the cardiologist feels that the patient is better suited for surgery, then they come to see me.
0: And you first meet up with them um, at the hospital?
1: Yeah, we talk to them in the rooms first. Uh, we usually have, a, have the pictures of their heart to show them, show, show them where the blockages are and explain to them what we need to do. And then, uh, of course, we see them in the hospital um, uh, before and after the operation.
0: Going back just for a moment to someone who has, um, for example, a a stent put in, Mm -hmm. um, when you're doing that, is there any danger of dislodging the plaque and rubbish that's in the artery?
1: When the stent's been put in? Mm. Well, I'm not a a stenting doctor, um, but uh, by and large, from my understanding, is that the people who do the stents, particularly uh, the people in Newcastle, are in fact extremely good at it, and um, the risk of rupture or significant complications that require urgent surgery is only about one in 1,000 so it's not a high risk.
0: So someone who has been told that that's what it's likely to happen to them they can feel reasonably reassured.
1: Yeah there's only about a one in 1,000 risk that they'll have to uh, go urgently to surgery because Mm -hmm. of a failed stent yes. Mm -hmm.
0: You're listening to Wellbeing and my guests today are Associate Professor Dr Duncan Thompson and John Mangan. Dr Thompson, although heart surgery is reasonably common, it's not without some risks. What problems might a patient experience at the time of surgery?
1: Well, unfortunately, there is a risk of not surviving the surgery, but that's uh, for most people with a healthy heart, that's under 1%. Um, The other risks that they face are infection of the wound. Once again, that's around about the 1% mark, serious infection. People over the age of 70, there's about a 1% to 2% risk of stroke get rapid heart uh, rhythm for a few days after the operation. And there's also the psychological effects. A lot of people get um, fairly moody or teary for a a while and sometimes it takes a while to adjust to all these things. Um, They're the main complications.
0: Is there any likelihood of having a heart attack while they're on the table?
1: About a 1% to 2% risk that might happen, but if it does happen, it's usually a fairly minor one. If it's a major one, then that's, they're the people who may, who may not survive the operation. But as I say, that's, the risk of that is uh, less than
0: 1%. So if somebody does have a heart attack, you can actually treat it there as, as the open heart. You can get stuck in and do whatever you have to do, obviously. Yeah,
1: it's just occasionally we see someone actually developing a heart attack um, after they've been put to sleep and then we have to put them quickly onto the heart-lung machine and then deal uh, straight away with that affected artery and quite often we can, um, we can abort the, uh, the heart attack mm-hmm. taking place.
0: When you have, when people have open heart surgery, do they always need to have a heart-lung machine?
1: Not always. Um, There's been a bit of a fashion lately uh, to sometimes, if it's suitable to do it with the patient's heart beating when using their own lungs and their own heart to keep the circulation going. Um, And that's, I don't know, I use that word fashion uh, deliberately. Mm. (laughs) Some of it is just fashionable. Um, But uh, it, it is possible. In fact, before the heart-lung machine was invented, that's how the original coronary bypass surgery was done.
0: Is there an advantage to having the heart-lung machine?
1: Um, the advantage for, uh, for the heart, using the heart-lung machine is that it's quite often if the heart's particularly um, sick and, um, and, and if in danger of having a heart attack, then you can take that danger away. If you're using the heart as a pump to keep the circulation going while you're operating on the heart, I think that... Um, if the heart is really starved of blood and oxygen, then that could precipitate a heart attack. Mm. Um, so that's, that's one of the advantages. The other advantage is that we can often get to other parts of the heart that are not very accessible. If, we, if we're if we using the heart beating, we can actually get probably do more bypasses on the heart-lung machine than most people do with the beating heart.
0: So you, you don't always, obviously, need to stop the heart. If you need to get to the back of the heart and I understand that that happens occasionally. Yep. Would you need to stop it to do that?
1: Not always, but as I, that, that's exactly the situation I was referring to earlier to say that you know, in, when, when you have to get to areas that are hard to get to, being, being on the heart-lung machine makes that a lot easier.
0: And you mentioned that sometimes there is a risk of a, a patient having a stroke at the same time. Is that very common?
1: Um, overall, for... Um, People under seventy, the risk is well under one percent. For people uh, over over seventy, it's, it's about one percent. For people over eighty, it's about two to three percent. Mm. So it's age related.
0: So, um, provided um, a person, I guess, is fairly healthy in themselves, other than the heart, um, their chances are, are quite good.
1: Well, if they are otherwise very healthy, the risks mm. of all those things go down. Yes.
0: Yeah. That's right. Are the people who have um, open heart surgery for whatever reason, are they likely to m- to need more treatment in the future?
1: Most people get uh, something like um, 10 to 20 years or more uh, f- from their bypass grafts and uh, how long they get from their bypass grafts depends on how good they are about the risk factors such as diet and exercise and uh, smoking. Mm. For, uh, for the heart valves, um, the, me- the, me- the metal or mechanical valves we put in last basically forever, but some of the tissue valves we put in will wear out uh, and may need replacing after about 15 to 20 years.
0: Would you take us through the usual procedure when you're going to do open heart surgery from the time you get your patient on the, on the trolley and his, he, she is wheeled into the theatre?
1: Well, the, um, there are two, uh, if we're doing so as a as the example Mm. Um, i'll be opening up the chest while my assistant is um, harvesting um, sat long saphenous vein from the leg Um, when we've got the chest open then i harvest an artery inside the chest called the internal mammary artery and when we've got all the graft material that we need then we um put the patient on the heart lung machine we have to thin the blood out so it won't clot and we put some tubes into the heart to take the blood out of the heart down to through the uh, artificial lung and it, it becomes oxygenated and put back into the patient while the heart stopped uh, while the heart stopped we put the bypass grafts on uh, which takes about uh, 10 to 15 minutes for each each bypass graft and then when that's all finished we um, put the, the, the patient's blood back into the patient and um, start the heart up again and just what we call wean them off the heart lung machine so we let the Patients' own heart take more and more of the circulation load until um, we feel that the heart is ready to manage that and then we stop the heart-lung machine and take the tubes out. Then we have to close the wounds up, um, put some drains in. Um, have usually got a couple of drains coming out of their chest and one out of their leg and then they go back to the intensive care for a day or two.
0: The vein you take out of their leg, do you, is there any procedure that makes you choose one leg from over the other?
1: We, if the patient's got varicose veins in the, in the leg, we'll, we won't use that because the big dilated varicose veins aren't very suitable, um, but usually we just go for the, uh, for the right leg because that's the most convenient one, and if the vein, for whatever reason, doesn't seem to be suitable, then we'll go to the other leg.
0: You reckon that um, it takes about 15 minutes to replace a, the vein in the heart. How long does the operation take in general?
1: Um, if you're in the anaesthetic time, it takes about three to four hours in total.
0: And then they go back to intensive care? Yep. Or they go to recovery and then to intensive care?
1: No, straight to intensive care.
0: Right, mm. okay. And you reckon a couple of days in intensive care? Well,
1: normally one or two nights there mm. and um, back up to the ward after that, yep.
0: And while they're in intensive care, are they, do they just recover or do they start physio or whatever at that stage?
1: Normally, uh, the next day, we uh, the physios have them standing up and walking on the spot, um, doing some uh, breathing exercises and that sort of thing. By this stage, they've still got their drains in, usually, so they're not very mobile. They can't mm. get around too much. Mm. But once the drains come out, then they start walking them around, and uh, by that stage, they've usually gone back up to the ward.
0: So it's uh, a reasonably straightforward procedure.
1: It's certainly um, very um, routine now from mm. uh, from our point of view mm. and the whole all the protocols have all been worked out and uh, everyone knows exactly what they need to do and it's a really big team too you know it's not just the doctors it's the nurses and the physios and um there's a whole lot of support staff as well the people who run the heartline machine everyone has their own expertise
0: so about how many people would you expect to have in the in the theater
1: in the operating theater about 7
0: so it's a an all go system
1: yeah, it's all pretty refined. Um, mm-hmm. We've been, all been doing it for many years, and it's all pretty refined. Yeah.
0: You mentioned earlier that you're a cardiothoracic surgeon, as opposed co- to a cardiologist. What's the difference?
1: Well, a cardiologist um, is a um, is a physician who uh, diagnoses heart disease, and um, they now have become, as I said before, become interventionists. So not only do they make the diagnosis by Squirting dye down the arteries and taking pictures. They now also um, will, through the, through a little key a puncture in the groin, they'll feed a catheter up and can dilate the arteries up and sometimes put stents in. But they don't actually get to the stage of opening up the chest, cutting the chest open, or putting patients on the heart lung machine. So they do every, everything without opening up the body.
0: Oh, okay. So you're almost the last resort in the in the line.
1: Well, if uh, if they can't do it, then we do it, yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: You mentioned a stent. Can you explain to me just in a little more detail exactly what a stent is?
1: Well, when a stent's expanded, it, it looks a little bit like um, a very fine chicken wire. So it actually goes in over a balloon catheter with the balloon deflated and then the stent is, is put into the uh, blockage and then the balloon is inflated and the stent is pushed open and as it opens up it becomes this mesh type appearance and and the the wire in the stent holds the artery open where before it was narrowed down, the the artery um, gets pushed open and held open by the stent.
0: So what percentage of people would end up having a stent as opposed to open heart?
1: Um, It's been increasing a lot over the last um, 10 years. I think um, about, uh, say, back 10, 15 years ago, it would be. 80% It would be that 80% would be having heart surgery, and about 20% stents. Stents, and now it's uh, almost reversed.
0: It's obviously a procedure that most cardiologists are happy with.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mm-hmm. mean, the, the stents don't give you as reliable a result. Uh, most people who have stents will um, come back with further angina and require further stents quite frequently. Um, But they do avoid uh, having their chest open, they do avoid the risks of uh, major surgery, so there is a bit of a trade-off, but um, that's what most people prefer to have done in the first instance. And if a stent works, it works well, and then you've avoided surgery.
0: Which sounds like a good idea anyway. I think so. (laughs) You're listening to Wellbeing, I'm Iris Nichols, and my guests today are Dr Duncan Thompson, a cardiothoracic surgeon, and Mr John Mangan. My second guest today is Mr. John Mangan. And, John, thank you for coming into the studio with me today. Thanks, Iris. You've had heart heart surgery. How long ago since you had yours done? Uh,
2: it was 14 years uh, and two weeks since I was done.
0: So you, you obviously, like a lot of patients who have surgery, you can remember it right down to the date.
2: Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I remember it well.
0: What happened to you to get you there?
2: Uh, well, about... Ten years previous to that, I had a heart attack in Maitland, and I finished up in intensive care at Maitland, which was a, a really good setup they had there, and I finished up having to go to Sydney for an angiogram, because they didn't do them in Newcastle at that stage, uh, and I went to the Prince Henry out at Little Bay, and my specialist said, well, you don't need heart surgery, he said, we'll just sort of coast along for a while, and I went another ten years, and I finished up with another angiogram, and... Uh, resulting in a, a triple bypass
0: and at that stage 14 years ago it was still comparatively new
2: oh no they'd been doing them I think they've been doing them for well over 30 years now and uh, I actually run across a fellow and he was done 29 years from when I'd run into him and he said back in those days he said they were doing them with a knife and fork he said compared to today which is probably right
0: Dr Thompson <coughs> does that sound uh, logical to you
2: Uh, We've
1: definitely been refining the techniques and not only the (laughs) techniques but also the equipment like the heart-lung machine has been getting better and better all the time. Uh, So there's been refining on on, on all fronts.
0: And I guess that makes your job a lot easier too.
1: It does. It reduces the complications such as bleeding and
2: things like that too. Mm.
0: John, how long were you in hospital at that particular time?
2: Um, Well, I was done at the John Hunter. I had uh, Dr Alan Boyd as my surgeon and at that time Alan Boyd was the only cardiothoracic surgeon in Newcastle, so he was virtually run off his feet. And I went home on the sixth day after surgery.
0: When you went home, how long before you started getting into exercising and and getting around?
2: Well, it was uh, probably straight away. I've got a a fairly partially level block of land, which I I fully used, and I was going for like 10-minute walks, and then another hour I'd have another 10-minute walk, and I was sort of building myself up that way. And uh, as Duncan said, it's the um, it's the exercise regime that you've got to go through to to keep keep going. Mm. And I still walk. Uh, we swim two days a week for about an hour. And um, you've got to watch what you eat,
0: which sort of goes back to the original advice that Dr. Thompson gave us at the at the opening of this program.
2: Yes, it's mm. uh, very essential um, with your vegetables and your fruit. And I, I love fish. We eat a ton of fish at our place. <laughs> I love the oils.
0: (laughs) When you realised that you were going to need open heart surgery, did that cause any special emotional problems for you?
2: Well, it was all new. I suppose people think the worst, you know, how am I going to go and will I get better and will I this and will I that? But I seemed to cope pretty good. I had an extended family around me and um, was very, very successful.
0: Did you at that stage think that, that your own mortality might be a bit daunting?
2: Well, that thought did cross my mind. <laughs> but I think, uh, reassurance off the, uh, cardiologist and, uh, Alan Boyd, the surgeon. And we've got a terrific bunch of surgeons in Newcastle. And they, the reassurance just sort of oozes out of them. You know, they, they know exactly what they're doing and they know how to tell you what they're doing and what they're going to do. And that is an um, immense help to you. Mm.
0: Dr. Thompson, do you have many problems with people who are suddenly confronted with this major situation?
1: Everybody goes through a, um, an adjustment. They, um, as you said, have to face their own mortality, and that can be can be very frightening for some people. Most of us go through life uh, ignoring that. Um, but this, it's, this is uh, then thrust in, in front of your face, and you can't ignore it. Um, and we're aware of it, and we often help people through it, and, and I encourage people uh, to express it uh, not bottle it up because if they bottle it up it's going to come out eventually so uh, uh, it's better that they let it come out. I mean I've seen people get very weepy at about day five, um, get depressed for for a while. Uh, If it persists and is a major problem then we sometimes get a uh, psychologist or someone to see them but that's not very common. Usually with support of family as John said you get through it okay.
0: John. As someone who's been there and done that, are there any other words of, of wisdom you'd like to offer to someone who's about to have heart surgery or having just had it?
2: Well, as, as Duncan said, uh, I'm a volunteer down at uh, Lake Macquarie Private Hospital. I've been there for about four, 13 and a half years. And uh, people do get teary. It is an emotional uh, time in their life as, as it is for their family the family are the main ones that offer support and any any help they can get off anybody and uh one thing that i've i've sort of learnt if the patient is to doing going to do exercise and he's he's a male we'll say uh and he's doing a walking program uh, take his wife with him or the other way around um just for someone to talk to and a bit of reassurance and if you have any problems will you get back to your gp or back to your cardiologist just keep an eye on what's going on around the place. But it's definitely not the end of the world and no matter how old you are, you've got a lot of living to do.
0: You mentioned earlier before we came on air that you're um, involved with the Hunter Region Open Heart Association. Tell me a bit more about that.
2: Well, that's a a group of volunteers that operate at the John Hunter and at Lake Macquarie Private. Um, There's a team that visit people over there at the John Hunter and we've got five volunteers who visit down at Lake Macquarie Private. And um you see people from all over the place. It's a very, very interesting team to be in. We get people from up way up the north coast, the northwest, wherever wherever they come from. People have been here on holidays and have heart problems and they get fixed up. I I do my shopping at Charlestown Square, and I can honestly say I never go up there without running into someone that I know. And my best day, I pick six.
0: That's not bad going.
2: That's it? not bad going, and they're all going.
0: John, the the association. How do you? How would someone get involved with that? A as a volunteer, or B just to get some help from them.
2: Well, they get a, we give them a folder, and we've got the phone numbers and bits and pieces like that. There, uh, they can join our association if they want to. We have. Um, monthly meetings we, which we hold over at the John Hunter, our um, committee meetings are held down at Lake Macquarie Private uh, and we've, we've had Duncan as a guest speaker. We usually have a guest speaker at our monthly meetings. Uh, our next guest speaker is going to be a solicitor who's talking about wills. So I don't know whether there's a connection there or not, <laughs> but uh, it's a very interesting group um, and we do, we do the best we can for uh, patients' assistance.
0: Dr. Thompson, when you come across people who don't seem to be coping very well, do you recommend that they go and, and contact these people?
2: We
1: don't have to in a way because um, the Open Heart Association comes around um, routinely to see all the, all the postoperative patients. Um, but if, um, if, if they have got a severe problem, as I said, we just sometimes get them to see a psychologist or even a psychiatrist. But um, once again, that is, that is quite rare. And I think one of the reasons it is rare is because they do get a lot of support um, from the Open Heart Association. And the other thing that John hasn't mentioned about the Open Heart Association is that they do a lot of fundraising as well and they've done a lot of good work uh, raising money for equipment and, uh, uh, and um, money for sending uh, nurses to conferences and things like that. So they've done a really fantastic job um, supporting not only the patients but also the cardiac surgery team uh, in, the, in the Hunter region.
0: I know how important these fundraising groups are for hospitals. John, on behalf of all of us, I'd like to uh, thank you and your colleagues for the work you do. Thank you very much. Dr. Thompson, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy uh, schedule and joining us today. Very welcome. And, John, thank you for coming in. Thank you. My guests have been Associate Professor Dr. Duncan Thompson a cardiothoracic surgeon, and Mr John Mangan. Thank you for listening, and until the next time we meet, from all the team, this is Iris Nichols wishing you well.